Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben from the Lean Blog. This is episode number 32 of the Lean Blog Podcast for November 9th, 2007. Our guest once again is our good friend Norman Bodek from PCS Press. He's here with us today, uh, the first of a number of podcasts that we'll have in the upcoming weeks. Today, we're going to talk about Norman's recent trip to Japan and what he saw there at um, Toyota and Hino Motors and some other companies and what he's learned from that. So thanks for listening. And uh, you can visit our website at www.leanpodcast.org. Thanks. Norman, thanks for joining us here once again on the Lean Blog Podcast. It's great to have you back. I thank you, Mark, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. We're um, happy to have you here and excited to hear about uh, a recent trip that you took to Japan. Um, I wonder if you could tell us about what you saw and what your observations were and what you learned. Very nice. It was an amazing, wonderful trip. I probably have enough information to talk about and write about for the rest of my life. <laughs> This was my um, 67th trip to Japan, believe it or not. Wow. And um, I was asked by um, officers of uh, Ingersoll Rand Corporation, their security division, to take a group of them to visit primarily Toyota. Mm -hmm. And I haven't done this for maybe 20 years when I was... uh, when I owned Productivity Press, Productivity Inc., I did a lot. In fact, the company did 50 of these. I probably led about 25 myself. But miraculously, just with a few phone calls, called the president of Toyota USA, and uh, I called Dr. Shingo Sun, who's president of the Hino Motors in China, oh, okay. and wrote a letter to the president of the Panasonic Appliance Division, and they were very gracious to set up five plant visits for us during this one week. We, mm. we left. I left September 1st. They left September 2nd. We met in Tokyo, stayed at the Imperial Hotel. And then on the first day, we took a bus to Hino Motors. Uh, Hino is uh, 50% owned by Toyota, mm-hmm. and they make the buses and trucks. And, of course, they're thoroughly involved in the Toyota production system. Mm-hmm. Sure. And I'll try to describe some of the new things that I saw as we walk through the plant. Um, When we come in, we're greeted by the managers, and they will introduce us to Hino and show us a short video of their products. Mm -hmm. And then the plant manager took us on a walk, and we went through the final assembly area. One thing I noticed that... um, the truck body, which is quite large, they had a device that was able to completely spin the body around hmm. 360 degrees in a very narrow space. And then it came uh, into the production facility, and I watched um, the workers working very quickly. I think that's the difference that I observe when I go to other countries, especially America, and look at production facilities. I don't see people working as fast as they do seem to work at Toyota. What was very unusual um, for me, and I've seen this many times before, but did not really understand the incredible power. I saw one 
worker, assuming a supervisor, videoing, taking a video of one of the workers on the line mm-hmm. who was assembling the truck. And he took the video for an extensive period of time. And I found out subsequently that he will take the worker um, building, assembling, say, 10 trucks. Then he takes the video into a meeting room and looks at it with maybe a few engineers, supervisors, and if possible, the worker themselves. Sure. Mm -hmm. And they will study that video looking for variability. Now, what's amazing is this is Toyota. This is this is Hinomoto. This is Toyota in 2007, uh, still looking minutely mm-hmm. to identify the variability and to make adjustments. So they're looking at the video and they're looking at it. There's ten. The workers doing the work, the same work, ten times, ten different trucks, and say they see two things that are different, slightly different. Mm-hmm. They'll discuss it, and either the variability will now become the standard, or they will discuss with the worker and show the worker the way they varied their Mm -hmm. work process to go back to the standard, because standard work, let's talk about this for a second, Mark, because standard work to me is two things. Um... It's it's laying out the process. We do these in our Kaizen Blitzes, and we lay out the process to make it as efficient as possible, mm-hmm. to reduce to reduce transportation, uh, to reduce inventory, etc. That's what we call standard work. Right. The best way to, but another level of standard work is the absolute best way for the worker to do the work. Mm-hmm. Okay absolute best way right. to do the work and the best way everybody must follow it but the brilliant part of the TOTA system is every worker has the option to improve oh, yeah so I don't see this use of video often in America at all you know we know that the TOTA system is fundamentally the elimination of all the non-valuating waste and Toyota has listed seven, and I've added two more to the list and make it nine ways. Um, I think the two that I added is one, which is the uh, unutilized talents of people. Mm-hmm. is a tremendous waste. And the new waste that I like is the, um, the resistance that people have to change, especially manages resistance to change. Right. So, and how do we overcome this? Yeah, and that, that's something we talked about in the last podcast for anybody who wants to go back and, uh, and listen to that. Oh, good. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, so we look at these seven ways and we go after them relentlessly. And I don't see that yet in America going after waste relentlessly. The waste of motion is an example. We know that's one of the seven ways from Ono, right. but not enough effort is spent to eliminate that waste. And this is why yeah. I, I like the example of the video. Another thing I saw at the Eno plant I thought was very interesting is I'm walking by a bulletin board, and on the bulletin board are pictures of workers. So this board had maybe 20 sheets of paper. On each sheet was a picture of a worker. 
and underneath was things written in Japanese. And I saw one worker coming to the board, writing something, and then leaving. And I asked him, what is that for? And he said, that board is used for the workers, that every time they make a mistake, they come over to the board and they write down what their mistake was. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> well, and so uh, did you get a sense or an example of what one of those mistakes would be? Is it something like, you know, I dropped something during the assembly process and it slowed me down, or I did, you know, literally just had a, a defect in the product, or what, what types of mistakes? Yeah, you got it. I mean, any, anything that the worker did, and look, we're human beings, and we all make mistakes. Right. And we all learn from mistakes. But the problem is, is that most of our organizations don't want us to make mistakes. You see? Yeah, and, and, but that's the way we learn. Yeah, well, and, and people certainly in a lot of environments wouldn't go and volunteer and, and write it down somewhere either. No. But, you know, it's funny. AME ran a, uh, a week's um, visit of about four plants recently. One of the plants was in Mexico. And in the Mexican plant, as they walked around, uh, they were talking about how they penalize people for making mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. And here, we know that people make mistakes because that's the way people learn. So how do we recognize that mistakes are a jewel, not something to hide? Yeah. We want the worker to identify themselves so they're detached from themselves. Yeah. Uh, and they will talk about the mistake that they made, and then they will give a either a recommendation of what they can do so it doesn't occur again, or they're asking their workers to look at this to tell them their ideas right, about right. what they can do. And the ultimate thing, which comes from Shingo, my, my great mentor, is Shingo was saying and recognizing, look, we make mistakes, but we don't want defects. And he made a dichotomy, a separation between the two, mm-hmm. recognizing that we do make a mistake, but we need a system that will not be a defect, and that's where he came up with Pokeyoke devices. Right. And I think we're, we're missing out also in America on Pokeyoke, because I visit American plants, I see very few Pokeyoke devices. Very few efforts of managers getting all of the workers involved in identifying and coming up with these simple devices. Mm-hmm. You go to a Japanese plant, and they're all over the place. Well, we, we, we tend to rely on asking or telling people, you know, be careful. <laughs> and that, it comes back to the idea that we're human. We can't be perfectly careful, right? Yes. So what I'm seeing primarily are very simple but very powerful things. Yeah. Can, well, yeah, then, I, yes, go ahead. Well, I want to ask a couple follow-up questions on some things you talked about already. Um I, mean, for, I, I think this idea of people um, being able to admit and identify that we, ha- you know, that we made mistakes and let's work together in a team how to solve it, you know, peer-to-peer and with the engineers um, is such a, a, a great example. And, and the, with the videotape, the fact that they would bring the, the employee they were videotaping in to work on that together um, seems very much along the lines of uh, the, the respect for people notion that it's not – you know, the engineer, the the expert, you know, looking to catch them doing something wrong and, and we're going to punish you, that, that, that whole mindset and teamwork just seems so diametrically 
um, oppose it. It's really you know refreshing to hear about that compared to the way most organizations tend to operate. Yes. You know, the videoing is a very powerful method that I really recommend. Um, one of the fundamentals, you know, is in, in manufacturing is industrial engineering. And I think industrial engineering has been losing out uh, on its real importance in organizations um, because they were important. You know, they came from, from Frederick Taylor's work. And they were very important in helping companies set up the factories and designing mm-hmm. work for people. And then they would look at people and try to improve the way they did do the work. Right. And we don't recognize video as such a, an amazing opportunity for these industrial engineers and managers to continually focus on the waste of motion, the waste of transportation, the waste of waiting, etc. Um... So Hino was a really excellent visit for us. Um, and another thing I saw very much, I saw it and I noticed it before, but didn't emphasize it too much, is the zones. In the zones. I was in um, Sweden a year ago watching them making, i trying to remember the name of a truck company in Sweden. And while I was watching this worker working on the engines, he did his part. And then stopped and waited. Mm. Um, there was a worker near him who was having a little bit of a trouble, but the worker having trouble was doing it on his own. It means the other worker didn't run over to help him. Yeah, he was just waiting, right? Just waiting. You know, waiting for the next engine to come forward. Well, in Japan, they have these zones, and they're marked out on the floor. And it's sort of like a race, you know, a relay race, where you have a certain zone to pass the baton. Mm -hmm. And they use that concept at Toyota because this zone is marked and the workers will help each other within that zone. People coming back, you know what I mean, and people going forward into that zone to work with each other so there's a smooth flow in the production. There's less of a hard set demarcation between this is my job and this is the Right, the way I saw this in Sweden. Yeah. Yeah. And so... You know, we eliminate a lot of waiting, and, and, and as you said, teamwork, a lot of cooperation takes place because we're there to really help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to a Panasonic the next day. We went to Kobe, took a plane to Kobe, which is uh, a little bit outside of Osaka. So we went from Tokyo to Kobe. Mm-hmm. And next day, visited two Panasonic plants. One was their induction heating plant. The this is the uh, home home appliance division, and so they make these, you know, like uh, the tops of the stoves, mm-hmm. and it's induction heating, which means there's no flame. Right. And then in the afternoon, we went and visited their Toughbook computer plant, oh, which okay. was really exciting to see that. Also, and I've I've been to Panasonic a number of times in the past, a number of their plants, and I was able to see the stark differences and three things that come to mind. Um, One is automation, and two is uh, part-time labor. I wanted to talk a little bit about. And and, and these are differences Um, from Hino or from from Toyota? 
Well, the, the, the difference is because he knows they're making big trucks. Right. So I'm looking at final assembly. At uh, Panasonic, we went from one beginning of the, you know, the beginning of the process to the end of the process. Right. Especially in or both plants, but I, I'm give more emphasis maybe to the computer plant of what I learned. Um, as we walked through, I saw a tremendous investment in automation. Tremendous. Um, first, the first center was drilling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the basis of the computer, of course, is the board right. on the motherboard. And I don't know how many hundred or a thousand chips go into that board. Um, so the first operation was drilling the board. The second, oper- the second line was completely automated equipment that would take the board and insert chips. Right. Mm-hmm. And so each um, machine, maybe it inserted 40 to 50 chips, something like that, automatically right. onto the board. And then automatically it was passed to the second machine where another 40 to 50 chips right. were uh, installed. This was new to me to see the complete automation of this process. And the only thing that the workers were doing, these workers were very high-skilled workers, and they were there to look for defects and to do any any repairs that were required on the machine to make sure the process continually ran smoothly. Right. I I think that's that's not uncommon for... um, for for circuit boards because of the, the precision and just the, the size and the detail oh, yeah. required, yeah. Yeah, I think also another thing here is that the Japanese are not emptying out their plants uh, to send everything to China the way we are in America. Well, and it, it's so much closer, you think there would be, I mean, there's historical tensions you know, between, and, and, and political dynamics, but I mean, just in, in terms of supply chain distance, China is pretty much right, oh, yes. right there. Oh, so no, you no. think you'd be, it would be more compelling to do that, right? Well, they do. They do uh, I don't want to mislead. They do send a lot of work to China. Mm-hmm. A lot of work. Not the core work. Not the intellectual work yet. A, a lot of the, you know, the labor cost will go to China, but if Japan, if these companies are going to compete with China, how are they going to do it? The only way that I see that I saw from this trip is one is automation. Mm-hmm. If we invest in automation and we're willing to look at a, a long-term ROI, that's another subject we should talk about, how ROI is killing America. It really is. It's killing America. It's killing American industry. Are you talking short-term ROI decisions? Short-term thinking, sure. yeah. Mm-hmm. Short-term thinking, maybe, and we're not looking at ROI. If we have time, we'll come back to this. Yeah. So I don't think we're looking at it correctly at all. So if I, if I invest in automation for the long term, then I can compete with China because machines, you know, there's very little labor mm-hmm. once the once the investment is made in, into the machines. The second thing they're doing, which is new to me, is part-time labor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. From the men 20 some odd years, close to 30 years now, I've been going to Japan. And when I started, it was almost all, almost all uh, lifetime employment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They had two things they had lifetime employees, and they did have temporary workers. And the temporary workers were mostly seasonal workers for seasonal swings. And, um, 
these temporary workers would only be brought in for a short period of time, but most of the company, over 90% of the company, was a lifetime employment. Right. They would take you out of high school, out of college, and you'd come to work, and you'd work there until the age of 60. Then um, you'd get a big retirement bonus. And your salary was based upon your age, not your skill at all. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So now the companies that I visited... Panasonic, they still have lifetime employment for the permanent employees. That still exists. Yeah, they that still system of payment. Mm-hmm. Still, they still get paid, I think, by age at Toyota if you're a lifetime employee. But now the temporary workers are there because if I'm automating, my automation is going to replace people, mm-hmm. and so temporary workers becomes the buffer. Uh, much larger than I've ever seen, um, meaning that one company I visited, 40% of the employees were temporary. Oh. Never oh. would have seen that 10 years ago. In another company, this is a Toyota subcontractor, uh, 20% of them were temporary. Even that's very large. So, and so the, the, as people, as lifetime employment Employees are retiring. They're they're backfilling with temporaries, uh, in in anticipation that the automation then would would eventually replace them. I think that, so. That's yeah. the, I think that's part of it, and that's one of the ways that they're attempting to compete with China because temporary work is very low cost. Yeah, you hire people at a minimum wage um, that they can. They're only allowed to work for three years. That's under the Japanese law. Right, temporary worker. Um, very little investment in training. Hmm. Um, you know, they do give some benefits, of course, while they're working. I think they're protected medically, things like that. Um, but very little investment as far as training. And I also noticed that the, I call it another dichotomy is between high skill multi-skilled workers and part-time. The part-time workers that I saw did the repetitive work. Mm-hmm. Same thing over and over again with no variability. At Toyota now in Japan, you can change jobs every two hours. You rotate every two hours your skills. But when I questioned the managers on the people that I saw uh, on certain lines, which I call the part-time lines, people don't rotate at all. Hmm. See, that, that's that's somewhat surprising to hear because I, I would think even if you're, uh, this isn't the the perfect analogy, but even if you know you're you're leasing instead of you know making that long term commitment to the employee, uh, you know, I'm surprised to hear that they wouldn't make an investment in in training and and some of uh, for for the impact on uh, product quality or you know the the impact that that would well, have they, on production. Well, you're, you're right, you know, Mark. I'm look, yeah. They do some of that, of course. Yeah. I mean, the, the part-time agency that I got to know and meet and like, uh, they run a one-week upfront course to teach a lot of the basics of the Toyota system, mm-hmm. as an example. But when they come to the company, very little, because they're only doing one thing primarily. You know, yeah. they're not doing multi-skills. So there, is there? There's less interest then in getting those employees involved in in Kaizen and and other improvements. Then is that? Yeah, I think this varies from company to company. Some companies, I think that they they are involved with Kaizen. They're asked to come up with improvement ideas. 
but but their scope of work is very very limited. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Another thing that I really well, first of all, I'd like to tell to tell your listeners listening to the podcast that I'm going back in April on another study mission, and I highly recommend they come with me. There's so. nothing more powerful in learning than on these study missions. Yeah. So if, if people wanted to do that, how, how would they meet up or, or talk to you about that? Oh, yeah, just give me a call. Just, you know, send me an email at bodek, B-O-D-E-K, at pcspress.com. That's Peter Charles Sam, pcspress.com. And, uh, you know, we'll talk more about my next trip. Oh, great. They're very powerful. I mean, I have learned so much on this. Okay. Well, thanks again, Norman. Thanks again to all the listeners. I I hope you'll join us when we uh, get together soon for our next podcast. Thanks again, Norman. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.